0: 2 Peter chapter 3. And again, if you'd like to use the Bibles provided, that's page 1019. I encourage you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand this morning, and tablet or your phone to let God's Word be alive and be the focus of these next minutes that we spend together. We're continuing this series, been our focus the last few weeks in 2 Peter tells us about growing in grace and truth, the path, the journey to be like Jesus who was full of grace and truth. This morning we come to 2 Peter chapter 3 and we begin these last several verses of our journey through 2 Peter together. Now, some time ago, I was in a, a bookstore. I was just kind of meandering around through various sections, and saw one uh, section that I don't usually go into. It was entitled "Self Improvement." I, I mean, why should I, right? You know. So, so, so I was walking through there, but I did see a series that I thought could be very helpful for me. A series. It was. A series entitled "The Idiots Guide," the Idiots Guide. I knew I was where I needed to be. Every topic that you could imagine uh, with a booklet or a book about it, such as the Idiots Guide to Computers. All right, uh, the Idiots Guide to Home Construction, the Idiots Guide to Gardening, the the Idiots Guide to Auto Repair. Now. These these books were tremendous. I want you to know the tough part though is checkout. Because you take the book up there, basically you're making a confession. I'm an idiot, <laughs> you know. But I want you to know they're available online. <laughs> they come to your house discreetly wrapped, all right. I did see one that had an interesting title. The Idiot's Guide to the Bible. The Idiot's Guide to the Bible. Really, really helpful. Because people wonder, where do I start? Where do I begin with this big, thick book? Which is about so many different things. And so having a simple guide to sort of understand the basics of the Bible. Very, very helpful. The Idiot's Guide to the Bible. But you know, as I thought about that. And I thought about the reality of the culture in which we find ourselves living in these days, often it would be this, that the Bible is considered the idiot's guide. The Bible is considered a guide for idiots. I mean, if you really believe this book, I mean, really believe it, You believe it is God's Word. You believe that you should actually implement its principles into your life and be guided by it. If you do that, in the eyes of the world, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. Some of you are experiencing that right now. Maybe at school. Maybe at work, you're trying to be a good influence. You're trying to be loving and kind, but some folks have found out you actually believe this stuff. They think you're an idiot. Some of you dearly love some people. You love them with all your heart, but they think you're an idiot because you believe in the reliability, in the trustworthiness. Of the Bible. So, how do we deal with that? How do you deal with it when trying to be the best person you can for Christ, folks, think you're an idiot and sometimes maybe tell you you're an idiot? How do you deal with that? Well, the answer is to deal with it with grace and truth grace and truth. And Peter has help for us today. And so that's the reason I want us to think about this passage of scripture and this this heading help and hope for idiots. Help and hope for idiots. Now last week just by way of review last two weeks actually Al and Joe covered chapter 2 which is a very challenging chapter, very very difficult chapter. To, to teach. Uh, that's the reason I was gone the last two Sundays. <laughs> Time for me to get out of Dodge, okay? But no, they did a wonderful job. Uh, tremendous. But it is a very difficult passage, chapter 2, even to read it publicly. It, it's a warning in the strongest of terms about false teachers. Chapter 2 warns us about how false teachers will come and they exist and also how they can be recognized. And you may remember they can be recognized. Chapter 2 Peter says in two ways. Primarily number one. They are recognized by their morals. They are recognized by their morals. They are characterized by self gratification. They, they, they claim to speak for God. But in reality their life is all about themselves. And their morals are of self-gratification. And they can also be recognized by their manner, their morals and their manner. And their manner is a life that's characterized by pride, arrogance, demeaning in their comments, with a, a superiority that they place in their teaching often there's a a prideful insolence that comes across in their messages. And that's the third way that false teachers are recognized. And that's what bridges us into chapter 3 where Peter says false teachers can be known not by just their morals and not by just their manner, but also by their message. And a good part of this final chapter, of chapter 3, Peter is focusing on the message of these false teachers and he's seeking to give believers then and give us today help and hope. Help and hope even when we are attacked and made to feel like idiots. This is how he describes their message and he describes how important it is for us to be steadfast look at verse one Peter says this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you beloved in both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder Peter was a believer in repetition repeating the same message again and again, maybe in different ways, but it's the same message, a reminder for people to be stirred up to action in a sincere, a a pure, a focused mindset toward living. He says, I'm going to do this as long as I'm with you. Remember the end of chapter one? He says, as long as I'm here, I'm going to remind you so that after I'm gone, you will remember. Verse 2, he says, now, this is what I've reminded you about again and again. Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and our Savior through your apostles. Now, remember, when he says the predictions here, he's not talking just about prophetic scriptures that have to do with the future it means the proclamation of the scriptures the proclamation of the prophets of god the proclamation of the commandments of the lord and savior through your apostles now isn't that interesting he says you uh, we are apostles we speak to you with the authority of the lord and savior he is an apostle the others are writing, and they're writing under the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember chapter 1, verses 20 and 21? They're being borne along by the Holy Spirit so that what they speak are the commandments of the Lord and Savior. When the apostles spoke, they spoke with the authority of the Lord. And so he is challenging people To be scripture saturated. Do you see that in verse 2? He says I'm reminding you. Fill your mind with the word of God. The Old Testament. The prophets. The New Testament. What the apostles are saying. Be scripture saturated. So that you'll be prepared. Prepared for what? Verse 3. Knowing this. First of all, that means knowing this, and this is of utmost importance. Knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now notice there's a couple things we need to understand. He says that scoffers will come in the last days. And when he says last days, you need to understand that doesn't mean just a few days before Jesus returns or maybe a year or two before Jesus returns. In the New Testament sense, the last days refers to the entire time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Jesus. In the Bible, the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus are called the last days. Do you remember what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 1? He says, God, who in times past has spoken to us in various ways by the prophets, has spoken to us in these last days. Days by his son. What are the last days? The last days are the time when God is speaking to this world the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the last days. Between the first coming of Jesus and the last coming of Jesus, the message of God. About the gospel of Jesus is to go to all the peoples of the world. But now notice, while people are speaking for Jesus and for God, there will be those throughout the whole time of the church who are speaking against Jesus and against God. Notice verse 3 And the last days. Scoffers will come with scoffing. Now, what is a scoffer? A scoffer is not somebody that just has a sarcastic sense of humor. A, A scoffer is not somebody who just says things now and then she ought not to say. A scoffer, in the biblical sense, listen carefully, is a person who ridicules righteousness. That is a scoffer. A scoffer is a person who ridicules the righteous things of God. Whether that's godly living, godly character, godly principles, or the Word of God itself, a scoffer ridicules righteousness. And Peter says... As long as the church is here on the earth, until Christ comes back, there will be people who are ridiculing righteousness. And now, folks, what kind of world do we live in with instant communication? Moment by moment, communication. Through the internet, through video, through television, through the printed page. What do we live in? We live in an age in which, yes, there is constant ridicule of righteousness. Constant ridicule of righteousness, of the things of God. And Peter wants to prepare us for that. And so what he does, he knows that the best way to prepare us for our enemy, not our personal enemy, but the enemy of our faith, is to help us understand what the scoffers are going to say. And that's what he does. He gives us an evaluation of the scorners ridicule. Here's what they're going to say. They're, they're going to ask a question. They're going to be questioning. But when they, when they question, they don't question for information. They're not really sincere looking for answers. Answers. They're questioning not for information, but really it's a question of interrogation for defamation, not information. They're trying to defame our faith, to defame our worldview. And they do it by saying, hey, we got facts on our side. You guys, your faith, oh, yeah, we got the facts. Here's one of their facts. Here's a fact of their interrogation. This is their fact. Verse number 4. They will say. Where is the promise of his coming? Talking about the coming of the Lord. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep. That means the patriarchs. All the way back to the very beginning of recorded history. Since they passed away. Until this very time, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They'll say, this is a fact. Why don't you look at the fact? The fact is, things don't change. There's not this divine intervention. And so they scoff at one of the most sacred things That we hold to and believe. Is that there is a day. When the Lord is coming. The New Testament. Is filled with this. You cannot be a Christian. And not believe in your heart. In the coming of the Lord. You cannot read the Bible. It is filled with it. One fourth of the New Testament. One fourth of everything in the New Testament. Refers to the coming. Of Jesus Christ. It's not incidental to our faith. The coming of Christ is fundamental to our faith. And they say, where is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been hearing about this return of the Lord for thousands of years. But all things remain the same. All things are constant. They're, They're actually using scientific terminology. There's a term for this. Everything continues to act in this world according to ordered principles and laws. It's called uniformitarianism. Aren't you impressed that I know that big word with all those syllables? Uniformitarianism. What does it mean? It means, listen carefully, this world in which we live is a closed system. It operates upon principles and laws that drive it day in and day out. It is not interrupted by powers from without. It operates by inherent uniform principles. These people are speaking very scientifically. Now, to them... Peter responds with a few of his own facts (laughs) when we should say he responds with some of God's facts because guess what, Christians, our facts don't mean anything. It's God's facts. And so Peter says, let me share some facts for their consideration. Some facts for their consideration. He gives three facts. He says, first of all, there's the fact of creation. The fact of creation. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlook. And I'm going to come back to that phrase. But it's very important. If you mark your Bible, mark this. The scoffers deliberately overlook these things. They overlook this fact. What's the fact that they deliberately overlook that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. The heavens and that means not in this case the heavens in which God dwells in terms of the heavenly abode of God. Though God is all places. The heavens here means this world. Our atmosphere. And even space itself. All of this was created by the word of God. God spoke his word. It means his will. It means his divine mind. He out of nothing other than his own ability to create, willed all that exists into existence. And he brought this out of, notice verse 5 says, initially, the initial form of creation was a watery chaos. Do you see that, verse 5? It says that it existed long ago, Of water and through water. And that's exactly what the opening verses of scripture say. How does the Bible open? In the beginning, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. And it says the earth was without form and void. And it says that darkness was upon the face of the deep. Then the Bible says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, that watery mass without form and void. And God spoke by His will. He said, Let there be a separation of the waters, and let a firmament come in, let a a dry land appear. And let the waters above, let this water be separated from the atmosphere of the earth and let it be surrounded by this water. So the, what we have described here is that in its original creation, the earth was formed by God's word in the midst of this watery chaos and it was surrounded Almost like a canopy of vapor. And God brought life. Onto the earth. By his will. They overlook. The fact of creation. God created. By his word. Out of the water. Through the water. And then. There was a flood. The fact of the flood. Verse 6. And that by means of these, the world that then existed. Notice, the world before the flood was radically different than the world we inhabit now. That world was deluged by what? Water. You read the Genesis account of the flood. It says that that canopy of water around the earth. Ripped apart and there was a deluge covering the earth. And it says the great fissures of the earth opened up and water gushed up out of the earth. And the earth was covered in a flood. Now what is Peter saying here? He's saying, listen carefully. We don't live in a closed system. That does not change God is able to intervene at any time. And he intervened once, big time. When he sent the flood. And he says, scorners overlook this fact. They don't don't want to even look at the recognition that there is existing, even in the geological formation of the earth in which we inhabit. There is every kind of evidence that this world suffered a deluge of water. Unimaginable pressure. And that the earth that existed before did not change over billions of years. But it changed in a deluge. That's the reason the strangest things are found. Tropical plants pressed into solid rock under immense pressure. Huge animals embedded in the ice of the North and the South Pole. Inside of them, tropical plants and seeds. Does that sound like the Ice Age to you? Have you been to the cartoons or something? No, these animals didn't lie around on the ground for eons of time and disintegrate. In a moment, intact, an atmosphere so changed that what was tropical in places became frozen in ice. Oh no, we don't want to think about that. We don't want to look at the geological column that shows you exactly what happens when strata and strata and strata of mud is pressed down under unimaginable pressure. And you find whole trees growing up through stratas of geological rock. But the same tree. The tree didn't grow for a billion years through stratas of rock. It was encompassed in a moment, in a deluge. The scoffers say, nope, not looking at that. I better run to the carbon method. What's the real issue? What is the real issue? The real issue is, notice this, what Peter connects. The real issue is this, the true fact of the motivation. What is the motivation? The motivation is to reject what is being seen, what is being shown, because if I accept that, then I can't do what I want to do. This is how Peter says it. Notice this. Verse 3. Did you notice this? Connect these two things. Verse 3. They are, these scoffers are following their own sinful desires. You notice that? They're following their own sinful desires. Now go down to verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact. See what's happening? I see the facts. I don't want the facts. Because if I accept the facts, then I shouldn't be living the way I want to live. And I want to live the way I want to live. I want to be free. So I just ignore the facts. Because this is not good. If I start saying there's a creation and that's the world shows there's creation, then that means I'm created. And if I'm created, what does that mean? I have a creator. And if I have a creator, then I'm answerable to him. And if I'm answerable to him, that means there's a judgment coming. And I don't like that, so I just reject it. Because if I reject it, and I say I don't believe it, I can live however I want. Paul says the very same thing. This is the heart of it, folks. The heart of it is rejecting truth in order to live the way people want to live. Paul said it this way. Look at the screens. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness An unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, what are they doing? Suppressing the truth. Literally, who for the purpose of their unrighteousness are suppressing the truth. Truth is suppressed, it's willfully overlooked. For what can be known about God is plain to everybody. Because God has shown it to us. God has shown himself to us for his invisible attributes. Yes, we can't see God. He's invisible. But his attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. How are they perceived? By our senses. They've been perceived ever since the creation of the world They are perceived in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Do you see what Paul is saying? The heavens, everything above us, everything around us, this incredible, beautiful day, this planet in which we live, the intricacies of life on this planet, all the amazing glory, all the things that are so incredible in how they operate, they are all declaring there is a God. There is a creator. And people recognize that in their heart. They know innately there is a creator. And yet, although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him and they became futile, empty, In their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. They they wouldn't see the light, so now they can't see the light. Claiming to be wise, they have become fools. Claiming to be wise, hey, we figured this out. We got theories for this stuff. (laughs) And we got textbooks about this. We, we've got earned doctorates in this. and Don't you understand? This is modern times. Rejecting what is clearly seen and saying no. They profess they're wise, but they become what? Fools. Folks, listen, a little three-year-old girl back here this morning who is singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. She is closer to the truth than people with a string of PhDs who postulate that this world came into existence and is maintained out of natural causes professing to be wise but not bowing the knee to the creator become a fool friends listen creation speaks this day out here it's saying some stuff you know what it's saying it's saying There's a glorious God who reigns and lives and he maintains this earth. It's shouting his glory. Now the Peter moves now and I can just touch on this. He says this is what they're saying. This, this is the facts that they're trying to put forward. It sounds so wise. But they're so foolish in rejecting the plain testimony of creation, of the flood, of their own heart. But now he says, we do sometimes wonder, Lord, where are you? I mean, wouldn't you, sometimes haven't you just hoped, Lord, just show up so they'll shut up. I mean, let's be honest. But you know what? The Lord's not on our schedule. So Peter explains the Lord's schedule. He explains and he doesn't just give us information. Listen to me, people, especially young people. This information that Peter is giving here is not so that we can go out and win debates. It's not so that we can go out and and argue. You don't argue people into the kingdom. You, You state your faith. You give the reasons for your faith. And you let the Holy Spirit do his work. And you do it with sweetness and humility. But... The reason the Lord gave us this information right now that I'm going to share with you is so we'd know His heart. Why has He not come? He gives us an insight, first of all, that His pace, the Lord's pace, is eternal. It's not on our schedule. Verse 8: Do not overlook this fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And here Peter is quoting Moses who wrote a song about this. You can read it, Psalm 90. And Moses said, a thousand years is like yesterday when it's past. A thousand years is like a watch in the night. God is timeless he, he's do, he doesn't act according to our timetable. We get in a hurry. God never does. He's never, never on our schedule. But now notice, he's never slow when it comes to his promises. He, he's not being two-faced. When the Lord makes a promise, that promise may not immediately take place. But that promise is as certain as God himself. His promises are unequivocal. His pace is eternal. His promises are unequivocal. He does not change when it comes to his promises. The Lord, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. That means that some people may say and then not do, but not God. What he says will come to pass. I remember I'm so thankful for those old songs that learned in church Every promise in the book is mine Every chapter every verse every line All the blessings of his love divine Every promise in the book is mine I haven't sung that song in over 50 years but it's still in my heart and it's still right here in the book, right? His promises will be fulfilled. Third thing I want you to see, his promises are unequivocal. Why does he wait? Lord, why don't you come? How bad can it get? How much longer can you wait? Why does he wait? It's because his patience is merciful. Verse 9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you. Here's his mercy. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord waits. He waits so that the gospel The message of Christ can go out and sinners by his great love will turn from their foolishness and folly, will turn to him and be born again. He's merciful. He's not willing that any should perish because when he comes, when he comes, the day of mercy is over. When he comes, the day of opportunity is over. It's done. And so, until then, his mercy, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, Paul said. He's patient. It's interesting, Peter mentioned the flood. I thought about that this week. Who's the oldest person recorded in the Bible? Methuselah. Interesting, his name, Methuselah. It's a little obscure, but there's two parts that are clear here. The first part has to do with death, die. The second part means something like this It shall come. There is coming. His death, it's coming. Methuselah lived 969 years, and guess which year the flood came according to the Bible? The de- year Methuselah died. The longest life of any human being, God used as a measurement of his mercy. When Noah was building the ark. How long did that take? Do you remember? A hundred and twenty years. And the Bible says for a hundred and twenty years. Noah was preaching righteousness. Speaking of salvation and of coming judgment. And that door. When he got to the door. The door of the ark was open. It was open for anyone to come who would believe. But when the flood came, the Bible says this, and listen carefully, it doesn't say Noah shut the door, it says God shut the door. When the day of judgment came, God shut the door. Who is the door now? Jesus. He says, I am the door. By me, if you enter in, you will be saved. His arms are open. Jesus is saying, come to me. Come to me. He even died with his arms opened on the cross, stretched out on the cross, beckoning people to come to him. His arms are open. Come, come. Whoever comes to me, I'll not turn my way. Whoever comes to me and believes in me shall be saved. Come, come. Why will you choose death? Why will you not choose life? Come, I offer you life. Jesus' arms are open. He is the door. But when he comes back, he's the judge. There's no time to develop this, but I just mention this to you because I believe it's important. There's just a couple of things of wisdom for the fools of this world that I'd like to share with you. Just two things. Number one, listen carefully. Don't accept a false dichotomy. There's a false dichotomy. A dichotomy means two things that don't go together. Here's the false dichotomy. You got to choose faith or science. That's what you got to choose. Faith or science. That's a false dichotomy. Why? Why? because science is built on the scientific method. What's the scientific method? The scientific method, according to science itself, is a method of observation, reproducible experimentation. Observation, measure, experiment, reproduce, test the hypothesis, you have your theory, See if you can prove it as fact. That's the scientific method. There's a problem with that when it comes to creation. You can't put creation in a test tube, you can't put God in a test tube. You can go far, far back. You can trace science. There's nothing between science and the Bible, there's nothing to be afraid of. But science ultimately, listen, takes a step of faith. How did it all begin? The Bible does the same thing. The Bible is understandable. The Bible gives a reason for the things that we see. The Bible gives causes for the effects that we see. But the Bible takes us back and says it started with God. That's faith. Here is the choice. The choice is between a sacred scripture Faith system and a secular science faith system. They are both faith systems. Amen. They both demand faith. Secular science and its explanation for how things got here requires faith because science itself cannot prove that theory. We cannot prove God's creation. But the Bible leads us to cause and effect. Tells us to look at the world. Look at ourselves. Look at our thinking. Look at our being. Look in the heavens. And takes us back to a place of faith. There is a creator. They're both faith. Do not let people puts you in a false dichotomy it's faith or science they're both based on faith it's scriptural faith a system of scriptural faith or a secular science faith and friends I just leave you this and I appreciate your patience I've been gone two weeks you know that right (laughs) right Don't reject a certain opportunity. What do you know for certain? See, there's all kinds of things we don't know. The Bible says we're looking through a dark glass. You know, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can tell somebody is, I don't know. Somebody can ask you a Bible question and you can dig around and dig around. And maybe the most spiritual thing you can say is, I don't know. I remember when I was ordained. You know what the pastors did? They asked me questions after questions after questions after questions. Till finally I said, I don't know. And that's what they wanted to hear. (laughs) They admit there's things I don't know. What do we know? There is an opportunity for personal salvation. You can be saved for all eternity. Because God does not want you to go to hell. He put his son between you and judgment. He spared not his son. And you can know for certain God wants you to be saved. If you want to be saved, God wants you to be saved. You must repent. You must turn to him. But there is nothing in God that you must do to make him desire that you would be saved. He's shown that in Christ. Think of the certainty of personal evangelism. Don't give up on people. Aren't you glad there was somebody that didn't give up on you? Keep telling them. I remember what my brother said at my ordination. The night I was ordained to the ministry. You know what my brother said? They said he said, if there had been a least likely to be ordained award, Sam would have won it. <laughs> that in my high school yearbook, it should have said, least likely to be ordained. And he's right. Don't give up. And there's an opportunity for personal implementation. I want to ask you something. Has God been patient with you? I'm sorry. Has God been patient with you? (laughs) Wow. I knew we were good. I just didn't know we were that good. All right. He's been so patient with us, right? Pass it on. Why are we so demanding? Why are we so abrupt? Why do we want our kids to get it the first time, the second time? Why do we give up on people? Why do we stop? We have the opportunity to say, Lord, make me like yourself. A person of, who delights in being patient. Yes, even to my enemies. That they might come to Jesus. Lord, I pray right now for those here. Who need to know that you will save them. There are people here who don't believe they can be saved. Oh, Lord, open their eyes. May they see you as a loving God. A God who so loves that he gave his son. May they see you, Jesus, with your arms open. Lord, I pray people will run to you right now in their heart. They will run to you. And believe and be saved. And I pray you'd help us to keep on believing the gospel works. Grace wins. And help us, Lord, to be people who model a patient heart like yours. I ask this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen.